0: Hi, everybody. Um, I am Amanda Scheeley from LSE, and I am so happy to welcome you to this evening's event. There is the title right in front of you. So as you will see, this lecture is uh, co-sponsored by the Department of Social Policy at LSE, as well as the U.S. Center as part of its uh, Phelan Lecture Series. And um, We have a very distinguished panel today that I'm very excited about. Um, So Janet Gornick is here. She is Professor of Political Science and Sociology at CUNY, as well as the Director of the Stone Center for um, Socioeconomic Inequality. And the director of the U.S. Office of Lists, which is formerly the Luxembourg Income Study. So I'm, I'm introducing her first because she has the most titles. Next, we have Lori Maldonado, who's assistant professor of social work at Molloy College in New York and is also a former research associate at the Stoughton Center. Uh, you will also see Eve Marks, who was a professor at the University of Antwerp and the director of the Center for Social Policy, Herman um, Delique and Rens Newenhouse, who's associate professor at Stockholm University, Sophie. So if you would like to read any more information about our speakers' research interests or the many publications that they have, I encourage you to go to the website and check that out. I just wanted to take a minute to say why this panel of speakers is really well suited uh, to talking about the topic that we'll talk about tonight and I'll give you two of those. First, while all of our speakers have expertise about specific contexts that I'm sure you can ask them about, their research is all at its heart comparative. And comparative and not just looking at how numbers vary across places, but thinking deeply about why different policies exist in different contexts and also... Uh, whether or not a policy that exists in one, con- in one context is applicable to others. And so they're not just a quick pick up a policy in one place and implement it somewhere else. So this should lead to a really nice discussion, I think, specifically about the U.S. The second thing is all of our panelists care deeply about policy. And so if you look at their uh, what they've done, they have published articles in really good places. They've written really good books books, with really prestigious presses, but they have also really taken the time to do policy work. Um, and so Lori has worked with policy advocacy groups in the U.S. like Legal Momentum to talk about single parents in poverty. Uh, this has received media coverage from The Nation, The New York Times, and Forbes. Rents has worked for the European Parliament, the U.N. and Swedish government, and he has just authored a report on the situation of single parents in the EU that you can all check out. Uh, Janet has produced reports for UNICEF, the Economic Policy Institute, and the New American Foundation. Uh, and Eve, along with his academic position, is also a columnist at De Standard, which is a very good newspaper. Not a tabloid, I am told. So, very good newspaper. This, this, this concern about policy and this is doing a policy reports also means... First of all that they're passionate about the topic but as you will see today it will also mean that they are excellent communicators and so um it's time to get started i should say please type your questions in the q a session um we will answer them after the panel uh finishes i will direct um, questions to specific panelists. Also, if you would like to share anything about your comments or you have thoughts or just want to say something about the event, please use the hashtag LSE single parent. Uh, and the last thing that I need to say is, oh, look, it just showed up in the chat. The other thing is that um, this event is being recorded. So that is everything that I have to say. And now I will hand it over to Lori. Thank you.
1: Thank you, I'm grateful for the support of the LSC US Center and for this platform with my esteemed colleagues. We're delighted that you tuned in um, because we wanna reach a broader audience to discuss policy suggestions for the US to improve the lives of single parents and their children. Um, So I'll start by framing today's discussion. First, to better understand the US context, um, we have to discuss the historical piece of who is deserving and who is not deserving of public assistance of aid. And so that brings us to
2: our theme of where are all the welfare queens and the myth of the welfare queen. In the 1970s,
1: 1980s, Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign gave rise to the stereotypes of single mothers as the welfare queen. The intention behind the welfare queen was political. It was to influence public perceptions, persuade voters, and dismantle the safety net. As you can see from this political satire, the welfare queen is portrayed um, in a really negative light, never married, African-American mother who cheated the welfare system in order to avoid work and claim benefits. The UK also has a parallel story with Margaret Thatcher and this, a similar stereotype of the welfare queen. I saw um, a British satirical comedy depicting a single mom and she was a white woman but she was pushing five kids um, in a stroller, each kid from a different father with a different racial background. So embedded in these stereotypes are undeserving mothers. Mothers deemed unworthy of receiving support and um, is perpetuated by gender, by race, by class, and by whether or not they've had too many children. The Welfare Queen um, this is a starting point for our discussion and it really pro- provides context to the U.S. narrative. Um, And I hope it raises some questions of, do these assumptions about single parent families exist? How has this image of the welfare queen and these stereotypes shaped US policy? And have they changed? Have they evolved over time? Um, We're now looking at Biden's plan and that the child cash benefits, but are those gonna discourage mothers to work and undermine traditional values? I hope that poses some questions um, that I want the audience to think about and the panelists to ponder and to consider. Okay, now let's turn to the research and to the data and to what we know about single parent families and policy because it's very different than the stereotype that I showed you, it's a big departure. Single parents are quite diverse and they are very different pathways into single parenthood, never married or partnered could be a widow, divorced, it could be a single parent by choice. Single parenthood is not a permanent state, um, but rather single parents transition in and out of single parenthood. Parents repartner, they remarry, children grow up. There are lone sort of solo single parents where the parent might not be much in the picture. And there are single parents in shared parenting arrangements So you have separate separated parents and they're co-parenting together. So single parents are not all alike and they require very different policy approaches. Um, For example, a single um, parent with a newborn has very different policy needs than, say, a single parent whose children are much older. The single parent with the newborn um, might needs leave, you know, a good job that has leave so she can care for the newborn and then return to work and then shortly after high quality childcare, right? The single parent um, that has the older children um, has to have adequate wages in the sense of where the single parents are able to save, right, and think about retirement. And so part of the journey and thinking about um, single parents is using a life course perspective, embracing this diversity to really figure out um, how to kind of make the best policies for single parents. So single parents are very different, but at the same time, they do share many things. Single parents are mostly mothers, although that's changing. And we are seeing increase of single fathers. And, um, you know, pre-pandemic, single parents were mostly working, right? And they have this common challenge of the single parent has one earner and one caregiver that's an adult um, in the household, right? Um, And that makes it difficult to to kind of um, balance it all. And so that, in in some sense, we can say in the US, but it's really across all countries, single parents have a higher uh, risk of poverty. So here's the US. Um, These are relative poverty rates uh, from um, single parents in the United States from 1974 to 2018. you can see the highest poverty rate was about 43%. And now in 2018, 35% of single-parent families were poor, right? So that's one in three single-parent families that are poor. It's a very, very high number. And we talked about um, the 70s, the 80s and the welfare queen, right? And that was AFDC, the Aid to Families with Children. Okay, so that was, that's kind of before. And then comes the 1990s, and this is Bill Clinton's presidency, And this is TANF, the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families to End Welfare as We Know It. Um, And what it really did is it went from AFDC, which was a federal program, to then TANF, which is state-run, had a lot less money um, going directly to single-parent families. It enacted um, a condition of if you need aid, if you want aid, you have to work. OK, um, and work will we'll kind of argue is a good thing um, if it's a decent job and adequate wage, but not low wage work. And it also enacted a five year time limit. Right. So six year comes around and you still need the support and your kids need the support. There's there's no support for you. In addition, it enacted um, and enforced child support. So just as we went after the welfare queens, we now go after the so-called um, deadbeat dads really these dads that need to take financial responsibility of their children. And that's what the child support enforcement did. But if you were a family um, and you received public assistance, really what, what it did was the, the system would go after the father to recoup, to get the, the payment for child support, but the state would take that money to recoup the state funds. That money would not go to the child, right? Some states have to do like a, a Passover, a $50 Passover to kind of incentivize it. But the purpose was that that didn't go to the children. It didn't reduce poverty. In fact, it sort of pushes families more in poverty. Okay. So I think, you know, we, we have this, yes, single parents are working, but we're gonna sit there in lower wage jobs. And we're gonna learn a bit from, um, you know, uh, Catherine Eden, Luke Schaefer's work um, of the hardship that single parents experience and this idea of so many live on $2 a day, right? So this real, real hardship that they experience. And I think overall, when you look at this picture, I mean, this is almost 50 years, right, in the United States. And you see that poverty is high. It's definitely high the entire time. Um, and, you know, the policy suggestions have, uh, and, um, policy has basically been the same, which is to provide limited financial support and to modify the behavior of parents. Okay. So that's looking at the U.S. I want you to think of that number of 35 percent because now I'm going to look at the U.S. in comparative and when you do compare the U.S. to other countries the U.S. is the outlier with high single parent families and um, poverty. My first piece uh, it was a legal momentum piece called Worst Off and it was about single parents in the United States being worst off as compared to 16 other high-income countries. But now, you know, I, I, um, we, we see that US has one of the highest single parent poverty rates of all countries. Um, here's the data, and this is the list data. Um, and I did it for 45 countries and US is the highest, but I just kinda wanna highlight three, the United States, um, Great Britain and Denmark. So what is not exceptional uh, about these countries is that poverty rates are high, see the blue bar? So poverty rates are high before taxes and transfers. The difference, the U.S. stands out when the, um, there's high poverty with the red bar. So that's after uh, um, accounting for taxes and transfers. For the United States, that's count, um, accounting for food stamps, um, SNAP, it's accounting for TANF, it's accounting for earned income tax credit, right? So that's, that's what that's doing. So, yeah, you, you do see benefits You know, go from 50% um, to 35%. You do see it making a, a big of a difference. But look at the U.K. here. Um, this is an exceptional story. You know poverty was at sixty two percent and is now at seventeen percent. And the united and the UK is remarkable because it did have very similar trend lines to the United States, but they worked really hard and really put investments to reduce child poverty, so much so that it was um, more than fifty percent and um you know and one of the strategies they used was the the cash child benefit which we'll talk about in terms of Vibe's plan um, and we know that the the uh, child benefit it helps all families with children in terms of reducing their poverty but it helps single parent families more um right so it's really going to the families that need it the most and finally you have Denmark um which has extremely low poverty eight percent poverty right so very effective um, in terms of transfers you know, and very low rates. So I think the moral of this story is the US poverty is high, but it doesn't have to be. And I think that there is really um, hopeful um, policy suggestions in terms of what the US can do to reduce poverty um, because it's been done by the other countries. Um, and um, at, you know, at the same time, we're only looking at income transfers here, right? So we haven't looked at work and making work better or leave and um, childcare and all these other housing and all these other things that can really support the well-being of single parent families. But I think, you know, hopefully with this talk, um, the take home points is I wanted to give you a bit of the U.S. context and the U.S. narrative on single parent families and a bit of a history, but also that you're looking at the U.S. in comparative perspective and these other countries and what we can learn. Um, So that's kind of, those are the two points that I was hoping to make. And to conclude, um, this is our book, Renza and I edited this book with many great authors, The Triple Bind of Single Parent Families. And um, it is on open access, so don't buy the book, just read it, Um, it's for free. And um, and, Renza is really gonna talk more about what The Triple Bind of Single Parent Families is and kind of lessons that all countries can learn in terms of policy. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much. Uh, so that is a good segue. Actually, you know who's next because you just saw his book cover. <laughs> Thanks, Ransom.
3: Thank you very much. I'm, uh, I'm very happy uh, to be here and thank you, Laurie and Amanda for, for inviting me and thank you for the, the LSE organizers for making everything possible. Um, what I want to talk about, um, at least in my brief introduction here, is that if we want to understand single parents and if we want to help improve their situation, we need to consider who they are and what resources they have themselves. But we also just as much need to look at what their uh, labor market situation is and what the policies are that are in place or are not in place. And that is very much in line with what Laurie and I in the book call the triple bind of single parents, their resources, their employment, And policies all need to be in place and need to be aligned in order for single parents to have a good situation. Uh, When we started working on this book, we were very much intrigued by why is the U.S. so exceptional in high single parent poverty. And we, we noticed that many of the explanations really were focusing on the individual characteristics of these single parents. The story was single parents are more likely to be lower educated and lower educated have higher risk of poverty. Therefore, single parent poverty in the United States is so very high. I'll go back to that explanation, but actually, because actually there is limited truth to it, but we wanted to provide a more complete analysis of the situation of, of single parents. So we looked at the labor markets. A job is important in terms of income, in terms of self-employment, in, in terms of independence, and the large majorities of single parents are actually employed. However, a job is not the same for everyone. If you look at the United States over the last decades, uh, wages have been growing, but only on average. The bottom half, half of the uh, workers did not see an increase in their wage. Labour markets have become more precarious, as we call it, more uncertain. They have become more demanding. They have been more uh, non-standard hours. So a job is not enough in terms of income poverty for many, particularly if you have only one, for one earner. A crucial thing uh, that we learned from uh, the policy part of the analysis is that family policy suggested child benefits that Laurie already mentioned, but also parental leave as a longer term investment in gender equality and childcare are crucial to help single parents to have a job, to hold on to a job, but also to do it in a way that doesn't completely ruin their work life uh, balance. However, what we also learned, and that's, I think, a very important point in policy discussions on single parents, it's not only those gender-oriented, gender-equality-oriented family policies that matter, but also more typically class-oriented, class-equality-oriented policies, such as income protection, minimum incomes, uh, and unemployment benefits. For instance, in Sweden, which has very generous childcare, very affordable, very good quality, Unemployment benefits, they were lowered, they were made less less accessible, and this particularly hit single parents and their their poverty actually increased um, very much in Sweden. I can talk more about that in in the Q&A. A very important part that we haven't talked about in this triple bind is that the resources, employment and policies of single parents are strongly gendered. It is still the majority, the majority of single parent households are still headed by mothers, by women. And still we don't talk about those fathers who are apparently no longer part of that household. Um, And that's a crucial resource that single parents, of course, lack is there is no second earner, second caregiver um, in the household. Um, As I said, it's mostly women who carry that burden, but it's also, as we've seen in the introduction, mostly women who receive the blame for this. Uh, When it comes to employment, uh, of course, when single mothers enter the labor market, they they experience a gender wage gap, of course, as many other women um, do. But another aspect is that as many women reduce their work hours when they're still married or when in a couple or they stop even being employed, if they then later on find themselves uh, to be a single mother, they don't have the work history that really helps them to get an adequate uh, job. When it comes to to policies, of course, there's still plenty of of policies of plenty of countries that really support the traditional breadwinner model, for instance, with joint taxation, with cash for care benefits, for instance, that really are incentives for particularly women um, to opt out of of the labor market um, when in a couple. And then again, later on in life as a single parent that doesn't work um, in their advantage. So it's really important, I think, to combine insights on their resources, the individual characteristics of single parents, as well as their employment, labour market situation, and the policies. And as I know, the other speakers that follow after me will talk about the employment and policy a lot. and There's um, absolute experts on that. I'll focus a little bit more on, on the resources, on who single parents are, because I think there's a few important points to make. First of all, the story that lower education leads to poverty and and drives the high poverty in the United States. That seems like a plausible story. Single parents are indeed more likely to be lower educated and the lower educated are indeed more likely to be uh, in poverty. So why wouldn't that explain so much? Well, a colleague of ours, Joachim Herken, he he, he did the complicated statistics and what he found is that this pattern of of low educated single parents basically exists in many other countries. It exists in France, it exists in Poland, it exists in the UK, it exists in the Netherlands, and it exists in Sweden. So it's the same pattern of low education among single parents, but still single parents in the United States are far more likely to be uh, poor. There is of course more to it, but it really strongly points at the, uh, towards more structural and political factors that are at play. And those are, of course, labour markets and uh, policies. But looking at who these single parents are also tells us a lot that this is a very diverse group. It's not a. a a single group, single, in the words, single group of single mothers that all share the same characteristics. Laurie already mentioned that, of course, people move into and out of single parenthood, um, and but also it's really important from a policy perspective. If you have young kids or older kids, it really matters what kinds of policies benefit from you. If you are a teenage mother, which is always you know seen as one of the drivers of of uh, um, Single parental, perhaps then you're better served with support to complete your education rather than searching for a job immediately. If we talk about the employment uh, and supporting or, or encouraging employment, which is of course what European and US governments do, then it's particularly the lower educated who ends up in those jobs that haven't seen any wage growth and, of course, are more likely not to benefit from um, that employment. And perhaps this is my last point about this, this diversity of among single parents. I think this is an important part, is also single parents are innovating. They are trying ways to, to make ends meet, to, to live their lives in ways that work. And if we look at this diversity of strategies that single parents take, we can learn from them what works well, and then we can learn and think about what helps. And I want to give one example is that increasingly in a number of countries, particularly in the Nordics, but it is more more general, fathers are much more involved after separation. And there is a lot to learn uh, from this. Um, And I immediately mentioned that there can be very important reasons that the involvement of both parents or the other parents after separation is not desirable, not beneficial or not even possible. Those reasons exist and those should be taken very seriously. However, what we learn in Sweden, but also in many other countries is that those parents who manage who choose the arrangements of the kids living equal amounts of times with both parents that have separated. That seems to be beneficial to those kids of the parents who make it work. So, of course, this is a selective group. This is a group of parents who tend to be relatively well off even before separation. So we can't just generalize this finding, but still, I think it's really important to put that on the agenda. Another benefit seems to be that the single mothers who live in that, who have that arrangement with, with the, the, the father of the children, they um, are better able to work because of course you know part of the child care, uh, if it's young kids, um, is, is is lifted and I think the, the benefits to the father who um, uh, choose this arrangement are um, self-explanatory. Um, As I said, there is limited scientific understanding of this and there is debate about this and I would definitely say it's too early to make strong policy recommendations, all parents should do this. But we do can learn from their innovation and we can learn how to support this better and I think we as a a community, as an academic community, we should. I'll conclude. how can we improve the situation of single parents in the United States? That is the question we are asking ourselves today. I think it's first very important to understand it's not enough, or actually it doesn't explain much, to look at what single, who single parents are themselves, what is their level of education, what are the choices they make. That explains very little, because people make the same choices elsewhere and they're fine. So that is an insufficient explanation. Instead... And this is, I think, of course, where the labor markets and social policies come into play. But the general recipe for what helps for single parents, it's not a, a mirage. We have a pretty good understanding. And that is the story that, what, that single parents, they do better in labor markets and social policies that support equality of gender and equality of class. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Jens, that was great. Um, Eve will now tell
4: us more about the labor market. <laughs> if you please. Thanks, Amanda. I hope everybody can hear me. Good, uh, good evening or good morning, wherever you are. <laughs> um, I will talk uh, briefly uh, about what countries uh, do to ensure um, lone parents um, adequate incomes. That is uh, what I will talk about because that, and especially working loan parents, because that was, of course, the whole objective, not only in the U.S., to turn the welfare queens into responsible, self-reliant, hardworking people. Uh, And that's been the case in in, in many other countries, too. I will offer uh, five statements very briefly. So first statement. if you it, if it care about about poverty and about uh, adequate uh, minimum uh, incomes for people, then it's clear that uh, jobs are important, uh, but they are not enough. Um, lone parents, and that's lone parents broadly understood, also the, uh, including those in, in co-parenting uh, situations, they constitute the core of what we call uh, the working poor. And who are the working poor? People who work, do their best to be self-reliant, but still fail to make uh, enough money to uh, afford themselves and their children a decent uh, life. Uh, we know that most children, uh, I think uh, Laurie and, and, and Renz already mentioned it, that most children growing up in poverty in Europe and in the U.S. live with parents that mainly rely uh, on earnings. That's not just the case in the U.S., that's also the case in in Europe. Um, And the most obvious challenge they face is realizing the full full, uh, earnings potential. Uh, That's simply to say, to combine work and care, uh, to be able to generate the income that they could potentially generate. So it brings me to to statement two, and that uh, um, uh, Renstein has already mentioned that, of course, public services such as uh, childcare, Uh, but also a a good, affordable uh, public transport are crucial uh, in this respect. And we know that uh, strongly more universal uh, policies, that uh, those yield better results than the more targeted ones. That said, supporting or services supporting people uh, uh, to to enable them to, to realize their earnings potential to work are very important, but they are not enough. We need more. Uh, And what do we need more? We need uh, adequate minimum wages, of course, or more broadly, adequate wage uh, floors. They are a very important uh, instrument in ensuring decent uh, minimum incomes to lone parents, uh, but also single uh, parents or to uh, other groups. But again, they can never do the job alone. There's a lot of talk these days about about minimum wages and the living wage. That's important, but it's important uh, to keep in mind that that, that minimum wages cannot do the job alone. And by the job, I mean ensuring people who do their best to work um, uh, to ensure them with an adequate minimum income. And now I'm going to share if this works out my uh, screen because I want to show you uh, some graphs. Um, Here we go and this is a bit of a preview from a presentation we will give next week so what this uh, graph uh, shows um, is um, the it's going to show what is the, the level of minimum income support given to a full-time working lone parent with, with two children in a range of countries in a range of european countries the us is uh, is also uh, included uh, and hard as that is uh, in itself, uh, to, to, to work full-time, uh, especially in a, in a low-paid uh, job. So, um, and that black line that you see is the poverty line, is a relative poverty line. So that means that that corresponds, of course, to a different amount in each country. So uh, obviously in the richer countries, the richer societies, that threshold uh, is much higher, as in, in, the, in, in, the, in the countries that, that are not as rich. Uh, so the, the level in Romania is, of course, much lower, say, than the level uh, in Luxembourg. Now I'm going to show what is the level of the minimum wage in, in, in each and every country relative to the poverty line. Again, that black line is, is the poverty line. And there you see that uh, except in a few countries, and, and Romania is, is one example, uh, and, and there's a question, is, is the minimum wage uh, properly enforced uh, there? But, but in most countries, the minimum wage or uh, a, a lone parent working full time for the minimum wage does not come anywhere near to the poverty line uh, in that country. And that even applies in, in the countries with the relatively generous uh, or high minimum wages, especially because your Gross pay is, of course, not your take home pay. People pay Social Security contributions. They have to pay taxes, and that takes away from, uh, from your income. Uh, and that's what you see in, in, in the blue bars and in, in the orange uh, bars. Good. Then the good news is they often get additional support. And this is, uh, this is uh, what, what the gray bars in this graph show, is universal child benefits. A lot of countries have universal child benefits. That's to say every parent, regardless of income, gets um, a monthly amount uh, every, uh, 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 for, for every child, and that of course uh, add, adds to their income. And and I think I'm gonna stress that point universal benefits are very important because they come on a monthly basis. There's no administrative or bureaucratic hassle, they, they're not delayed had they add to the income every month, whether they work or not. There are no uh, work incentive issues. So these are a very important part of, of minimum uh, income protection. But then again, you see that even in countries with relatively high minimum wages and relatively high uh, universal child benefits, still not, that still does not do the job. They still not, do not reach uh, the poverty threshold, especially if you take the taxes and, and contributions uh, in account. So the basic message there uh, is simply, you need more stuff, you need more extra support. And you could uh, say like, yeah, let's raise uh, those universal child benefits. But those are, of course, very costly measures because you give them to everybody. And in the real world, uh, resources are are limited. So what you need is targeted support. And now I'm not going to, I don't have the time to explain all this, but it basically shows a whole bunch of targeted supports that are given uh, in 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 the countries that are uh, in the graph, and so and these can take the shape uh, the shape of housing benefits, and how and heating uh, allowances and um, uh, extra allowances for for care and and so on. But basically, what you see and it's important to to look uh, now at the kind of diamond or rhombus-shaped uh, uh, things in the graph, those represent the net income, the net take-home income of a lone parent working uh, for uh, for a, a minimum wage job, taking everything into account. And you see, and that's also the message that, that, that uh, Laurie uh, uh, brought uh, at the start, it can be done if you want to provide adequate minimum incomes to hardworking lone parents, But not a lot of earnings potential. You can do it, but it it takes it it takes a lot. It takes minimum wages, it takes universal uh, benefits, and all kinds of uh, uh, supplements. There's no one magic magic, uh, bullet, as so to say. It it needs a lot of of stuff, and of course, uh, the Americans among you uh, are wondering where is the U.S. Uh, uh, Here is the U.S. at this moment, uh, where the American uh, flag is. Um, So it's not uh, at the top uh, of the pack, uh, obviously, and and that also results in very high uh, poverty rates, as as Laurie has uh, shown. And this is, uh, here is a familiar face, this is Joe Biden, of course, the, the current president. Uh, and this is a simulation, we just did it a couple of days ago, um, of where the, the U.S. Uh, would be uh, if the, the Biden uh, child credit uh, were implemented. So it would take uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, up, uh, it would, would, would uh, move up uh, the ranks, but uh, still it would not be among the more uh, among the more generous countries. Huh? But this is certainly progress. And if you look very carefully at the, at the graph for the US, you see that the reason, especially under the Biden plan, quite a bit of extra support is given. But the problem is that the minimum wage is so low. And, and this, the, the red bar represents the, the, the minimum wage, which is still the federal minimum wage of, of $7.25, uh, which hasn't moved in, 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 in more than 10 years. Um, And, of course, a lot of states and even cities have have, have been implementing higher minimum wages. But it it shows how crucial the minimum wage uh, is or increases in the minimum wage are in the U.S. uh, context. Good. Um, I'm just going to kind of uh, close my my, my opening uh, uh, statement. Um, uh, I also wanted to say that targeting uh, benefits well is easier said uh, than done. There's all kinds of of, of problems. Um, it's it's um, it. I mean, it requires an invasion of, of of privacy. People need to give a lot of information. It requires a lot of bureaucracy, and and that results in 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 in, in often in 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 stigma, and delayed payments, and people not getting what they what they need uh, in, in time. So. Targeting looks much better on, on paper often than than our targeted benefits look much better on paper than 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 they are in in reality, but we can return to that so to cut uh, a long story short and i 'm going to end here and so the best systems basically look like uh, a well stuffed lasagna it 's as simple as that, and so they have strong or they have thick layers of universal uh, support supplemented by, by all kinds of targeted uh, Extras and so if a policymaker or U.S. policymaker would would uh, ask me what to do, I would uh, say five things. First, support work through publicly funded childcare, uh, but also good, affordable public transport, training, uh, and so on. Two, set minimum wages as high as the local labor market can take without adverse employment effects or at least put uh, minimum wages on an upward uh, trajectory. Three, keep taxes and social security contributions on low earnings to a minimum. Four, have universal or quasi, uh, the the child tax credit now is a quasi universal benefit as a first extra layer uh, of uh, support for working uh, uh, households. And then five, have uh, targeted supplements for the most uh, needy, including for loan parents. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Eve. Uh, Janet, are you ready to close it out? I'm trying to think of a good baseball analogy, but I can't, I can't remember them right now. But you will get us there. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Can everyone hear me? I was just turning off my mute. Terrific. Thank you, everyone. I'm honored to be a part of this panel. I want to take my time today to tell a story about the United States, one that's fundamentally historical. The extent to which this story is uniquely American is something that we can discuss uh, perhaps after all the presentations. So just to clarify, I'm actually gonna say very little about cross-national variation as that ground has been very well covered. So what I wanna do is to relate the rise and fall of the welfare queen in the United States. It's it's a fundamentally historical and political story that I'm telling. In doing that, I'm gonna re- reiterate comments that Laurie made um, and also shift the narrative uh, somewhat. In short, as I say it, The American welfare queen was born rather suddenly. She lived for about 20 years, and then I argue she met her demise. Saying goodbye to an ugly and distorted stereotype was of course reason to celebrate. But what I wanna argue today is that what followed a pernicious form of invisibility may be even worse, especially from a policy perspective for large numbers of poor single mothers in the United States. So let me just pause to note that I'm gonna use the term welfare in the American sense to mean public support usually cash for poor individuals and their families. And more specifically, I'm referring to the two main programs that Lori mentioned, AFDC until 1996 and TANF after 1996. So as is well known by now, Ronald Reagan introduced the story of the welfare queen actually in 1976, four years before he was elected president. The original welfare queen was a unique and extreme case a troubled woman named Linda Taylor who committed various forms of welfare fraud and it's believed much more serious crimes. Reagan assumed office in 1981 and the story of the welfare queen took off. And what's important to note is that the welfare queen became a more generalized story, one um, that was embraced well beyond Ronald Reagan and his White House. The adapted welfare queen was actually less dramatic and that had the malignant effect of making the story more plausible and thus more widely embraced. So Laurie's covered some of this. Conservatives pushed the story forward. The American welfare queen had three characteristics. One, she didn't work for pay. Two, she bore many children out of wedlock. And three, although often left implicit, she was of course, a black woman. The forces pushing the welfare queen into public view were formidable. The anti-welfare forces in the public sphere were powerful. They included a motley bunch, if I may be blunt, of racists and misogynists, uh, as well as others whose motivation was more rooted in American style anti-government sentiment and anti-welfare political actors were bolstered by shifting public opinion. Much of it was top down, meaning that these political actors created it. In any case, by the mid-1980s, negative public attitudes were in place. The salience of welfare as a problem had risen dramatically, uh, and many Americans believed that AFDC was vastly larger than it was, both in terms of recipients and cost. Throughout the 1980s and early 1990s, a lot of scholars and advocates pushed back against this mythology. They documented that many AFDC recipients did in fact work for pay with their earnings supplemented by benefit receipt. They also documented that the average number of children among AFDC recipients was 1.9, less than the national average. And despite their overrepresentation in photographs in the media, they documented that well fewer than half of ASD recipients, AFDC recipients were black. For 20 years then, from 1976 until 1996, the U.S. fought the so-called welfare wars. Uh, It's not a good use of time to rehash the whole complex and sordid history, but I think it's worth emphasizing a few points. One key point that I really want to convey is that features of U.S. welfare policy and various policy reforms both gave birth to the welfare queen and paradoxically uh, led to her demise. So on the eve of Reagan's election, AFDC rules did in fact include incentives that made it difficult for recipients to move off of AFDC and into paid work. Among other factors, departure from AFDC often meant the loss of health insurance, a terrifying prospect for parents, uh, for low-income parents. And in a story that was not, that's still not told enough, Ronald Reagan worsened the calculus. In 1968, the AFDC program implemented the 30 and a third rule. That was an income disregard that allowed recipients to keep a portion of their earnings without loss of benefits. The 30 and the third rule was viewed as a landmark legislation aimed an increasing incentives for paid work among AFDC recipients. In 1981, under Reagan, the 30 and a third rule was abolished. Um, and that perhaps paradoxically strengthened the tale of the welfare queen. Starting in 1981, AFDC recipients were deterred from working for pay to any substantial degree, which created the very link between AFD receipt and worklessness that was at the heart of Raven's story. Some historians have argued that that's exactly what motivated that important policy change. So my point again is that features of AFDC worsened the welfare queen's story and opponents of the program exploited that. So let's jump ahead to 1996. After two years more, one could argue, but especially two years of often vicious debate, during which on the floors of Congress, welfare recipients were openly insulted and demonized. AFDC was abolished via legislation widely known in the U.S. and elsewhere, I think by now, as the welfare reform. I didn't then, and I don't now, celebrate the demise of AFDC. I was there, I watched it closely. Um, But for the purpose of our discussion today, I want to point out that its abolition also prompted, I would argue, the demise of the welfare queen. And I think that is largely worth celebrating. Without a cash assistance entitlement, the welfare queen was no longer plausible and conservatives largely gave her up. The simultaneous policy shift toward in-work benefits, EITC in the U.S., shifted the national image of poor mothers from the welfare queen into that of the low-wage worker, a more sympathetic figure. In 1997, just one year after the welfare reform was passed, Jason DeParla, New York Times writer known for his in-depth reporting on AFDC, wrote in the New York Times quote, welfare recipients last year's political pariahs are shedding their outcast status. So that was a quarter century ago. What replaced AFDC and the welfare queen? A few facts. First of all, TANF is a vastly smaller program. Shortly before it was abolished, AFDC's caseload peaked at about 5 million families. That meant essentially 5 million poor women and their 10 million children. In the US terms, by the way, that's a small program. Um, TANF in 2019, served 960,000 families, a caseload reduction of over 80%. And as has been well documented, the share of TANF families that receive cash has drastically fallen as various forms of services have been favored by policymakers in most states. Second, as you've heard already, um, as of 2019 specifically, the overwhelming majority of single mothers in the U.S. were working for pay. So on the eve of covid The world has changed since then. 68% of partnered mothers in the U.S. were employed, three percentage points below the OECD average. And in contrast, fully 75% of single mothers in the U.S. were employed, four percentage points higher than the OECD average. Suffice it to say, single mothers in the U.S. rely heavily on employment, as you've heard from the other speakers, and has been widely documented substantial share of jobs held by single mothers, most especially poor single mothers, are low paid with no or limited benefits Poor working conditions and a high degree of precarity. And needless to say, labor market policy reform is desperately needed in the United States, but actually, that's not my, my point. My point is that single mothers are mostly employed, and that's largely understood by political actors, policymakers, and even the general public. It's also consistent with the fact that at least before COVID, we experienced many high visibility election cycles in the US during which essentially no one mentioned welfare or welfare recipients. Now I would say simply and crudely put, many poor single mothers face a different political and cultural context, one that is perhaps as insidious as that inhabited by the welfare queen. Although a large share of single mothers are employed, a substantial share, about a quarter on any given day are not connected to paid work or not strongly so. The reasons for that are many, a lot of research on this beyond what I'll talk about today. Suffice it to say that many face barriers and conditions that make relying on paid work infeasible. Without wages, and thus without the EITC, without cash assistance, millions are left in a nearly cashless world, a difficult and frightening place, one that's characterized by material hardship and multiple forms of insecurity. In 2016, Kathy Eden and Luke Schaefer published their book, $2 a day, living on almost nothing in America. They argued that the number of American families living on $2 per person per day had reached one and a half million households, including 3 million children. Although some important scholarship challenged the precise numbers about the prevalence, few poverty researchers doubted the overarching story. A large number of families are living in many ways, nearly off the monetary grid, making do with in-kind benefits and for the most part, unstable and often improvised housing options. While poverty researchers absorb these findings and other findings, most Americans, including many policymakers, simply fail to see this population. In 2020, Jeff Madrick published his book with the title Underscoring This Point. His book, Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty, argued similarly that large numbers of children, many but not all with lone parents, live in extreme poverty. And in today's United States, these children and their parents are mostly unseen. So fortunately, I would say, growing bodies of scholarship have shed light on other crucial realities that drive extreme poverty among single mothers, that is in addition to employment instability. So let me close um, by highlighting two extremely serious risk factors, both of which demand policy responses beyond what we've discussed so far. Matt Desmond's 2016 book Evicted documented that the risk and reality of eviction is devastating millions of poor families with lone parent families, especially at risk. Crucially, he demonstrated that eviction is not mainly a consequence of poverty, it's a cause it's a cause of poverty. The story told in Desmond's book, I can attest to this, shocked even poverty scholars. The utter lack of public policy supports for poor people navigating exploitative rental housing markets can hardly be overstated. And finally, new work is uncovering and documenting the extraordinary damage caused in the United States by mass incarceration. Books, for example, by Michelle Alexander and Elizabeth Hinton, have traced the rise of mass incarceration and the damaging institutional and policy factors that have driven its growth. Today, over 2 million persons are incarcerated, 90% of them men, and millions more are caught elsewhere in the system. Many excellent studies have demonstrated the scarring effects of incarceration on men's employment prospects, especially among black men. A newer wave of research has focused on the collateral damage done to the partners, overwhelmingly women, and children of incarcerated persons. Today, according to the Annie Casey Foundation, about 6 million children in the US have experienced losing a parent to incarceration at some point in their lives. The consequences are far reaching, damaged employment prospects for women and poverty for children are among them. So the welfare queen I've argued, perhaps overstated, I admit, is dead. One of her successors is the employed single mother, although employment by definition offers some economic security Many are struggling in an underregulated labor market, lacking the most basic protections. Her other successor, not connected or not strongly connected to paid work, struggles in a haze of invisibility, frequently facing a cashless world, extreme housing insecurity, and for some, an absent partner caught in a bloated incarceration system. These women and their children need to be brought into the light, and a new policy framework is needed. Thank you.
0: Thank you for that. Um, so I have some uh, questions here. Uh, and I am going to go through and, and uh, direct them now. Um, I also wanted to let you all know that we have people from Kenya, India, Greece, the Czech Republic, the UK, Iraq, Luxembourg, Cambodia, Colombia, and Canada listening. So. Um, Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming. Uh, It's really exciting. There are some reasons to really like Zoom. Um, So the first question I'm going to give to Rents, and this is from Margaret Antony, um, and she says her question is on the importance given to providing consistency and certainty in state support to single parents, irrespective of their socioeconomic background characteristics. So how do countries um, compare in terms of offering um, consistency and certainty, certainty? And is it being compromised in the face of stereotypical beliefs about the single
2: parent? (laughs)
3: <laughs> deep breath That's yeah that is a million pound uh, question of policy design and I think it touches on the point of making good policy is hard to do um, let, me, let me try to give two, two answers to, to the question on consistency the first thing is that policies need to be in place for a long time to be really effective it's not we implement a policy, we, it's not we implement childcare tomorrow, and yes, there will be benefits tomorrow, but the real benefits will grow over time as people get accustomed to it, um, change their choices, change their work arrangements, and start to support the policy, which also allows to extend it. Um, Swedish uh, commitment to gender equality didn't come overnight, it didn't leave overnight. It's a, a continued commitment since well, at least the 50s. Um, and over time, that has grown into what is now considered um, a very gender, a relatively gender equal country through these policies. And of course, um, headed by a government that identifies as feminist. Um, the other part to this, so th- that's really important. And I think in terms of childcare, to continue with that policy, the has seen more benefits than less benefits. There are also some, some other problems um, uh, that we can talk about later. And the use of it is much lower because the fluctuation back and forth of more and less support to to good childcare. The other point, I think it goes back to what Eva said about the the lasagna. Um, The more universal a policy is, the better it is used. And even though it seems very attractive to, oh, we only give policies or access to the policy to those who need it most. So we target policies. So we set extra rules to check whether someone is eligible or should be eligible. Um, that seems like a strategy that may give you very cheap, um, a relatively affordable policy. But the problem is the more complex you make a policy, the more rules you install, the, less, the fewer people will actually use it. And it might not actually be the case that, that people do use it. So uh, and now I'm, I'm going to cite uh, not my own research, but that by uh, Wim van Lunker, who may or may not be um, in the audience today. Can't see him though. He um, he, he studies this inequality in child care use, and he does show that it's not about how much a government spends on child care that increases the inequality in who uses it, and it tends to be that parents with higher education who can earn more use it more. No, but it, it seems more the universal access that all parents can use childcare that seems to be associated with more equal levels of use. So you see this, uh, calculates calculated score for inequality and it's much higher in, for instance, Ireland, Poland, the UK than it is in Denmark um, and in Sweden, because in Sweden, every child has access to childcare, which is of good quality. You actually have the right to go uh, to have childcare and otherwise you can call the municipality and demand a place in childcare and everyone pays the same three uh, percent of their um, household income, up to a certain limit. So it's a very universal policy, and therefore you see the use is. That's part of the reason why the use is so more, so much more um, equal. Of course, I know Eva can say a lot about this universalism and targeting um, as well. I hope that partially answered the question. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Yeah. And so if I was wondering, actually, if you could say a little bit, a little bit more about universal versus targeting in your remarks. You had talked about how targeting was hard. Right. And so um, so you were in, 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 in I think at least three of you talked about universal child benefit as, as a way of, of thinking about this. Um, and you also talked about inadequate minimum wages. Uh, so one policy that I've heard about a lot is a basic income. So are what, you know, is, a, is the basic income the lasagna noodle or, or is, that the, is that the solution? Or how can you, could you talk a little bit about that, please?
4: Yeah, that's, that's the, the, the inevitable question that always comes up in every debate. What do you think about basic, uh, basic income? Uh, but, but perhaps to, to return uh, to, to Renz's point, so the, the whole idea, and, and that relates directly to basic income, the whole idea of or the, the whole the, the balance getting the balance right between universal uh, benefits and, and universal services versus the more targeted ones, that's one that we've been ha- having in, in, in social policy for decades now, and, and we're still and we're still having having it, yeah, because uh, uh, universal benefits and, and that would include the, the basic income, uh, they're costly. That that is they're costly at least on paper, because, of course, people get, get uh, stuff uh, back um, and they're wasteful. Huh? So you, could, you give a lot to the people who don't really uh, need it. Um, and, and of course, from that perspective, having more, uh, using your, your money in a more targeted way, having a kind of a, a bigger bang for the buck, uh, as it were, is attractive. But it is, as I said, very uh, hard to do. And uh, for the UK audience, they, they will, I think, immediately uh, think of the universal uh, credit. the universal credit debacle, uh, uh, if I may call it that way, because it had a very it had a great idea behind it. The idea behind the universal credit was let's make the system simpler and also make the the system like more agile. eh? So the whole idea was that that people would get uh, uh, that the benefit would adjust every few weeks, every few weeks to uh, changing uh, circumstances in people 's income or in their their, their uh, living uh, conditions, but it has proved so immensely hard to actually implement and and the idea was information technology we have all this data we have all these powerful computers these days and and, and, and that will make it work uh, and it 's not working a- at all there's countless uh, stories of people not. Uh, getting their their benefits um, uh, also because computers use algorithms and 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 which sometimes have, have crazy results that have a very serious uh, impact on on real people's uh, lives and so from that perspective, universal benefits are are much more attractive and the the, the extreme case of that is is a basic income um, and of course people that are some very vocal and, and very ardent uh, advocates for for basic uh, for basic income um, <laughs> but i, I think it's, it's, it's a policy with with limitations um, uh, simply because what it would involve in the real world and people have done the calculations uh, these days so we have all these simulation models uh, except except in a society where people are to, and especially the, the higher earners are ex, are willing to accept very high, even much higher marginal tax rates. It is uh, if, if people are if, if especially the higher earning, the richer people are happy to be taxed uh, far more highly than it's doable. In the other case, a basic income would, would, if, would, would in effect mean that you take money away from the sick, from the unemployed, from pensioners, from the poor, to fund a scheme that would give money to, to, to everybody. And I think that is, that is basically that is taking it too far. That being said, I'm, I'm a strong advocate for, for universal child benefits as a layer not as, the, as a total solution, but but, but as a layer. And, and you could regard a, a, a universal child benefit as being close to a basic income for a child, or at least for households with children. And so I think also that there's a, a good case to be made for it from various more kind of ethical or philo- philosophical standpoints. But I think we need to be well aware that that is never going to uh, offer... Um, uh, 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 the total solution uh, to, to poverty, but maybe part of it.
0: Thank you. Uh, so I have two related questions about culture. Uh, one about um, well, and so I'm going to punt this to both Lori and and Janet. So the first culture question is from Alfonso Diaz, um, who's an MSc urban planning at LSC. Um, And what he was saying is, again, this idea of the welfare queen um, might be gone, right? But the ideas are very much still alive. So to what extent can we think about culture as an explanation for the keen contrast in political support for poverty reduction policies and thinking about differences in culture between Europe and the U.S. um, in terms of difference? And then for... Janet, um, I have a question from Chris Peel, um, San Jose, California, United States, so actually interestingly I think in that first list of countries I didn't have anything about the United States but the United States is here about the talk about the United States Um, and the question is again less a question about what the policies are but the politics of getting them implemented so again how do you if we all agree that universal child benefit would be beneficial how do you get that past Republicans? So, Laurie, do you want to start and then Janet?
1: Great, thank you for the question. Um, I think it it also um, that that question um, makes me think. Kind of going back to some of Janet's comments, I think I can kind of tie them together in terms of, you know, Janet and I think we do agree, like where are all the welfare queens, they're gone, right? Um, You know, and I think, you know, in terms of even um, that new article that you sent, you know, Biden has dethroned the welfare queen. So we're still using the language in the debate, right? Um, And I agree in terms of how uh, the welfare queen, you're taking it to kind of a more nuanced place, but kind of back to this question in terms of culture of poverty in the United States, this is really uh, welfare. Receiving public assistance is tied to race and our racial history in the United States. And we could talk about it in welfare. Um, and Janet also met, mentions in uh, mass incarceration, right? Where that's Michelle Alexander's work. Um, that's, you know, that, that idea of mass incarceration is now a present-day form of slavery, right, um, where we're putting Black bodies behind bars. And so um, that idea of cultural poverty in terms of welfare, I think it is very much racialized um, and, and also in terms of mass incarceration. So that's really a, a really big part of, of the United States and kind of understanding that. And it does make me think um, a bit of, you know, that I a a, a means-tested program like TANF, right, Um, like, you know, all these things, you know, programs, this is, uh, I think, a a title of one of Eve Mark's paper, programs that are for poor people are poor, are uh, poor-designed programs, right, this idea of when it's means-tested, especially in the United States, because um, the United States is a bit racially charged, um, that, you know, that they're really meager, so TANF really meager, I mean, this, this is like not even, you know, reduces poverty by 5%, right, the EIT EITC does so much more in terms of reducing poverty. So it brings us to, again, this universal targeting. Um, it brings us to, you know, um, TANF is not working. I mean, We see that the high poverty rates, um, EITC is, it needs to be expanded, right? Child Allowance Universal will help all, you know, and we see that they help single parent families more. And that kind of gets it around it. of like, if you really want to have um, people middle class buying into policies, that, that in some sense, some of them need to be universal.
0: Thank you for that. Jana. do you want to talk about lawmakers?
2: Uh, yes, let me say a bit. Um, first of all, you know, my c- argument that the welfare queen is dead, you know, has specificity to it. I certainly don't mean that's the death of resentment towards public programs, especially among conservatives. And it obviously wasn't the end of racism and misogyny, and all that that would be obviously completely naive and overstated. Um, the political situation of the United States and in, and in other countries, but especially here, is it's mysterious and it's volatile and it's ever changing. So just a few things to say that um, the question referenced uh, Romney and indeed the candidate Romney, who's now, of course, considered. You know, well, even then, I guess, was considered a moderate Republican. Now he's among the very few. Uh, made this speech, which was caught on video. It was not supposed to be in which he talked about 40% of Americans being tapers, meaning that they received benefits and didn't pay taxes. Um, there was, the tape was leaked and there was an outcry. And uh, the person who asked the question, and it's a very good one, sort of, you know, is is I, the premise seems to be, you know, even this kind of reasonable human being made that claim. The fact is, I think it cost him the election. Um, it was a political loser at the time, and uh, partly because very quickly, of course, uh, this story was corrected that, you know, most of these people who were, quote, not paying taxes are many, va- the vast majority were retired or they were students. Uh, and of course, he totally misunderstood that they weren't paying other forms of taxes and all that. But it's pretty widely agreed that it caused him to plunge in the polls. It wasn't well-received. Um, so just to point to the larger point, why wasn't it well-received? Partly because Romney was still in the, in the aftermath of the Great Recession. And I mean, this is a really hugely over maybe simplified point, but it's famous in the United States for, we are famous for big swings between, you know, poverty is caused by it's cultural, it's structural, it's cultural, it's structural, it's cultural, you know, it's caused by bad behavior and bad judgment and lack of, you know, capacity to, uh, to 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 discipline one's instincts and all that, and if it's structure, it's obviously it's it's, exo- it's imposed from the outside. Those swings, you know, in the night in the 1870s, you know, it was sort of culture, and there was a big depression in the 1890s, and the progressive era was born, and we switched to sort of structure, and then we had you know the Roaring Twenties, and we switched back a bit more towards culture, and then came the Great Depression, and it was sort of back to structure. Anyway, that's very simplified, but when there's when it's evident that exogenous forces are at work and that people are not simply lazy and unmotivated um, Americans across the political spectrum are much more supportive of income supports you know for for working class and low income households and the completely obvious example right now is covid so covid hit you know the united states and obviously the entire world it hit the us fairly early and you know the disruption to the labor market was massive and we've seen the most and then of course the the white house turned over won't comment because it's supposed to be an academic panel, but um, we've seen the most progressive public policy in in almost 50 years. And indeed, this child benefit is now sunsetted, it's temporary, but this is the the question. Are we at an inflection point where this uh, double Democratic Congress and Biden and some shifting public opinion, greater awareness of the need for child care and labor market supports and all of that? Is this a time when the Democrats can grab this moment and make that child benefit permanent. That would be enormous. And the Republican pushback is pretty feeble. So anyway, I don't want to go on too long, but, you know, while the Democrats are pushing forth, you know, universal child benefits, the Republicans are arguing over whether January 6th happened or not. And, you know, whether, um, whether we have, you know, whether Dr. Seuss isn't being published because, woke people don't like it. So they are backing away from most of these fights right now. What's going to look like in five years or 10 years is anybody's guess.
1: Janet, also, could you, um, I, I appreciate you commenting on Biden's plan, and, and can you comment on also maybe the hope of uh, family leave, paid leave, and child care?
2: Well, I mean, the whole, you know, I think, Lori, I must have said this to you at some point, I I've been following U.S. social welfare policy for 40 years. What can I say? I joined the staff of the Urban Institute in 1980, right when Reagan was elected. I've seen, a lo- I've seen a lot of things in my life. I never thought I would see what we've seen in the last few months. Uh, work family reconciliation policy advocates have been talking about child care and leave for decades. Uh, Biden selected an economic council that included one of the world's leading advocates of leave and child care. And they are pushing it forward. Now it's limited still, you know, for public employees and, you know, by European standards, it's limited. But the, uh, and again, I mean, at this, I have to say, I'm saying as an observer, as a reader of the newspaper of somebody in the world, I'm not actually studying public opinion as a scholar. So I have, I have that caveat, but there is just no question that the public debates are shifting and the understand, and actually just to say one more thing that goes back to my claim about the death of the the welfare queen. One of the things that did come with 1996 was a recognition that people cannot work for pay without childcare. That single parents, in particular, can't work for pay without childcare. The death of AFDC did cause a certain rise in public investments in childcare, which actually then trickled up. And now I think we're getting the same discussion about leave. So um, I think this is the moment for uh, for leave and childcare. And even the conservatives are really not pushing back terribly much on this either.
0: Thank you. Sticking with culture for just one more, one more minute. Um, and this one, I will, uh, start with rents and then see if Eve wants to comment as well. Um, and this one is from Aimzan um, is PhD in gender in sociology at the university of Minnesota, but MSc in gender, uh, gender studies research at LSE. So jumped the pond. Uh, so, uh, actually this is a question about about fathers and then we'll come back to culture. Sorry, I skipped my question. One question about fathers, which is, um, So her research seems to show that single fathers are a bit better better positioned than single mothers, but worse compared to married fathers. And they're often um, at risk of falling through gaps in social safety net available for single parents. So um, programs designed for single mothers. So they want to hear she would like to hear more about single father situations in the EU. uh, If you have anything to talk uh, about with that. Um, and then, actually, Rens, the other question that I want you to do is: um, several of the speakers had talked about Scandinavian countries um, being hailed as the model for reducing childhood poverty. Uh, but if culture is a determining factor, how could you implement such a Scandinavian model elsewhere? So, Rens and Eve, Rens, would you like to would start, and then Eve, come back, please.
3: Absolutely. Um, so, regarding fathers, I'm. I'm I first must admit, because I'm a survey researcher, I don't know all that much uh, about single fathers because at least the way we measure single parenthood, we have very little um, numbers of single fathers in, um, in, 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 in our data um for instance the european union and european um, commission statistics they i don't think even they differentiate the single parent statistics by gender and i think that's that's an omission because then we don't really know well what is going on Mm -hmm. um i i i'm what we know from is that single fathers at least economically do better than single mothers and of course there's a uh, uh, a gender aspect in terms of work history and and of course that might also be a more selective group um, in terms of um the the how welfare states are arranged for them i think there might indeed be be gaps um in the policy <coughs> policies designed for single parents right so in the, in the in the nordic countries and i'll come back to that you see that that many leave policies, for instance, are gender neutral. So they are, there is no paternity leave. There's no maternity leave. There's only parental leave. Any parent qualifies. Um, can even be more than two parents per child. Um, but of course, in many countries, it is still leave for fathers, which is much shorter. Um, so in that sense, it is you know they will I think um, uh, quite often lose out. Uh, and another good example is from the UK: the the uh, bedroom taxes. When I think it was a year or five ago, or something the idea that if a separate, so a single father who, let's say, shares the the residence of the the child with with the the mother, their former partner, but then if they are receiving any benefits, but also want to receive the child a few days per week in their home, or every other week, for instance, in their home and have an extra. Bedroom to make space for the child, then actually they are um, their benefits are reduced because they live too large for whatever household um, they they are forming according to the letter of the law. So I think those, that's just an example. But I think if you go, start looking into that more in more detail, then you will find a lot of these discrepancies. and And if you are indeed as a PhD at LSE, if I got that right, studying that, I think that's super interesting, and I'd, I'd be very much interested to 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 hear more. Well, then, the question, so can we, it's at least a million kroner question, can we export the the Swedish model or the Nordic model to, to other countries? Well, not overnight. That's not how it works. Um, the Swedish model as it is now didn't emerge out of nothing overnight. That took decades of commitment. Um, and I think the, the if... Of course, ultimately, it's a political choice. What, what kind of policies do you want in your country? And it's, a, you know, it's up to the electorate. But I think the important story to tell here is we're not supporting specific groups who should take their own responsibility. But these policies benefit everyone. And they benefit the economy. And they reduce inequality. And they help support a, a healthy, well-educated new generation. So I think that is a story and everyone benefits, kids, uh, sorry, people who do not have kids benefit from the existence of childcare because your colleague will be uh, at work more effective or, you know, more, more entertaining. So I think that is a story to tell, political strategy, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, Will it happen overnight? I don't think so.
0: Thank you. Um, you oh, Laurie, go ahead.
1: Question, a follow up question to Renza because um, I really appreciate you talking about. I, I've always been like, why don't I just leave the United States and go to Sweden? I, you know, just because of the robust um, um, support. Um, but there is one paper I'm thinking of of the diminishing power of one. That even in Sweden, you know, single parents are struggling. And if you can say a little bit more about that that narrative, um, I think it would be helpful.
3: Okay, thank you. Yes, but that, that actually is a really um, a good segue that, yes, Sweden has this long commitment and fairly effective results in terms of gender equality. And in that sense, single parents, even if they lose their job, they, you know, their kids have, and, and they themselves, but also the kids have access to school or childcare, to healthcare, et cetera. So in many ways, that is a very strong model in terms of equality. However, and I briefly mentioned it in my, in my introduction, that after 2000, or leading up to 2006, particularly after that, unemployment benefits, they, the levels became uh, increasingly low, and it became much more difficult to qualify. And what happened is that in the evaluations of those policies, the, the, the message was, oh, this didn't increase poverty by all that much. But that is in dual in Sweden where many who lose their job have a second earner in the household who can for a while compensate for the the loss of that income. And at least in the shorter run, as in the first few months or first half year, um, perhaps even the first year, economically, that's fine for people. However, if you do not have a uh, a second earner in the household, and of course that is predominantly singles and single parents in Sweden, um, then... Losing your job in these new conditions of of the unemployment benefits almost instantly meant that you would live in poverty. Um, And we saw due to that change, despite being there's generous parental leave, there's good quality affordable childcare. In 1990, 6% of single parents lived in poverty. In um, 2010, it was 28%, almost one in three. And that is not in full, but in, in important part linked to that transition into um, uh, in unemployment benefits. So I think that goes back to my point. So thank you for allowing me to make that segue, Laurie. That goes back to my point that we do not only need to look at you know family policies that we typically consider when we talk about gender equality. We really also need to consider class equality policies, so to speak, such as unemployment benefits and minimum income protection.
0: Thank you. you. Um, So I have a question from um, the Lord McKay of Clashburn, who is a member of the All All Party British American Parliamentary Group uh, here in the UK. Uh, And the question is, how should parents who are single because they are deserted by a wealthy husband be dealt with? So a lot of what we've been talking about has been around poor single mothers. So uh, Janet, would you take that one, please?
2: How, um, this is an interesting question. How, uh, how should parents are single because they're deserted by a wealthy husband? Uh, I have to confess, I do not know the demographics on that. I don't know the prevalence or what exactly, you know, that means. But I, I mean, I think I don't mean to make light of it. Uh, m- many countries and in the U.S., especially many states have child support law. In the United States has a child support law. as do many countries. The level of enforcement, the extent to which, you know, it's preemptive really varies. But, um Presumably, um, single parents who have wealthy non-custodial partners should have some, you know, sort of compensation through a, a well-enforced uh child support system. And indeed, it's actually interesting. The the question about wealthy, I mean, it is I think it's a somewhat marginal question only in the sense of the prevalence, but it is something that's been debated a lot as to whether child support levels should be set for sort of a minimum level of subsistence or a comfortable level of subsistence, or to retain, you know an earlier standard of living and and that still remains an open question. Thank you.
1: I, uh, I appreciate the question um, because, you know, uh, for the majority, we're talking about the high risk of poverty of single parents, but, it, you know, there, there's also other uh, divorce, the wealthy husband, and it does remind me of the history of child support that really was uh, for, um, you know, protecting mothers from, from the husband leaving, right. You know, and going after him. So that was really kind of the intent and, and sort of some of that resonates today, but, the, but it is that, that the family should have And the children should have the same economic well-being, right? Um, And so, kind of finding supports around that to to support them. Um, But it it kind of brings me so sure, you know, child support is one alimony, right? Those other kind of things. But also, you know, is it a situation where can the parents co-parent, right? And what that looks like? Um, And to think about um, involving the father but not in sort of that deadbeat dad welfare queen model of like, okay, he has to pay or he has to financially support, but can we really involve the father, you know, for the well being of the children and more of these gender roles of working and caring for the children. Um, And I think that applies to uh, across classes, right? That that's something that we really, really wanna do for families um, and what that looks like, um, right? That, you know, of of, of both kind of coming in together. Um, And I do think, you know, that there are some policies That could support that, right? So, um, you know, if you were to, if it was, you know, even a a middle income, high income uh, family, if they, you know, that the child was just born, if you had leave and you were able to share it, right? Um, So, Sweden, uh, I'm highlighting Sweden just because Renz is sitting in the room, but, you know, they've got um, leave up until the child is about eight but it can, it's shared equally between parents and it could be transferred between parents, right? So in some sense, I think that that is a great, great uh, idea. So it's not just money, right? But that you're also um, investing in fathers, investing in mothers, which is investing in children and creating more of this work family balance. Um, and even, I, I think Renzi, you can kind of highlight this, but if there are separated parents um, that you can not transfer the leave, So, you know, this parent can take one, that could take the other, um, but, but it makes it where like, even if um, they are separated, it's an easy transaction to do. Um, and, you know, it's, it's in sort of, if that's a scenario where it's in the basic case for the children, then so be it. So um, I do appreciate the question, because it does think us, you know, that, that you know, yeah, uh, there, we
2: are talking about poverty, but a lot of these do apply to middle and high income. Can I just add to that? I don't know that Upon. But um just, I want to say two things. Actually, I think Laurie is absolutely right to point to the fact that leave designs really matter for the incentives for mm-hmm. fathers to take. But actually, I I think maybe Laurie, you said that awfully quickly. It's actually non transferable leave that is the incentive for fathers. So what in many countries, not just the Nordic countries, but many now, uh, men and women get individual rights to leave, and they can't transfer them to their partners. That's the way uh, that has vastly increased men's take up uh, to, to to leave benefits and that's absolutely correct that a non custodial parents can can be invited into that system but i just do want to say one other thing that i think and again i don't mean to you know make light of the question because it's an interesting one the fathers of the most solo parents children are mostly poor um there there's not and that's a, that's a big concern about child support enforcement is oftentimes you know you have and they're diverse but you have poor fathers who simply are not employed, not to the labor market, can't make the child support. That's why we need public systems. And in fact, a lot of poor men who are in arrears on their child support are imprisoned, which makes it impossible for them to A, make up the arrears and B, uh, to go back to work. And several, I know I'm, I'm sort of maybe, well, I don't know if it's off the topic. Several of the high profile police killings uh, in this country were, um, especially a well-known one in South Carolina, were men, unarmed men, shot in the back because they were running from the police. And the reason they were running is they were in child support arrears and they were afraid of being behind bars and they just wanted to get away. So it's an incredibly problematic system when we end up with the poor fathers uh, with few resources and then we're forcing them into institutional situations where they cannot make up uh, the arrears or rejoin. So I think we need to be more concerned about about the single mothers whose children's fathers are poorer than than the wealthy.
0: We have four minutes left, which means that I have the uncomfortable uh, uh, job right now of trying to take lots of really good, interesting questions and trying to choose the one that I think that you can all speak on the best. So uh, especially for the other single parent scholars who have asked us questions, I really appreciate them. And we will have times where we're having a single parent conference next week and we can really talk about these issues there. Um, but right now I'm going to focus on one one other question. Um, from Pruskila Agatha Suleiman, who is an undergraduate student at the, from the University of Indonesia in Indonesia. And she has a question that she thinks applies to all speakers. So what she's saying actually is, is to think of, uh, not just in the U.S., but for relatively conservative countries, such as my home country, where people's views on single mothers have always been negative. How can policymakers navigate stigma and negative attitudes towards single mother in creating a social welfare program? That can benefit them and and one of the things that I like about this question is to what extent and this gets back to I think some of Eve's stuff around universal and targeting to what extent can you have a program that helps single mothers if single mothers are stigmatized that will then be accepted so let's go through the order that everybody spoke and you all you have like you know, 45 seconds to answer this very good question. No, actually, I'll give you a minute each. So we'll go, uh, Laurie runs Eve and Janet. Okay.
1: I'm going to pass off to Eve first because I know he has a good answer. <laughs> Thanks, Laurie.
4: No, I don't have at all. I only had a good answer to uh, the question by the Lord McKay because the obvious answer was uh, she, she should uh, look for a, a very good, uh, vicious uh, lawyer. Um, but the the other question, it's it's uh, it's. I'm, I'm gonna pass that, that. That's a harder one. I'm gonna pass
3: that on to Renze and, and and Jenna. Seems like I'm getting all the difficult questions. I think the um, short answer to how I would recommend a policymaker who wants to implement these kind of policies in a conservative country to try to emphasize the common ground and the common challenges that single parents face or single fathers for their mother. Um, they, these challenges are not unlike those of others. It is difficult to combine work and family, and it is difficult now with the COVID pandemic. Homeschooling is hard, particularly if you have a job. And of course, it's a bit more hard if you have to do it all alone, but emphasize the commonality of these challenges. And also, of course, what I said before, then the solutions to that childcare, leave in order to be able to provide homeschooling. um, They benefit all families with children.
2: I'm going to venture a guess that the person who asked this question can answer it much better than any of us can probably answer it. And um, it's an excellent question. I think what my colleagues have hinted at, obviously are universal programs um, are always advantageous in this political context of Uh, you know, of wrapping um, stigmatized groups into the benefit system. But I think just, I want to close on, I think I'm, I'm really impressed and touched that you asked this question because what we need to think about is that the world is now a global place and we have spent most of our time, I'm going to speak for my colleagues here, studying rich countries and maybe upper middle income countries. And it's time that all of us look Uh, as we are doing at LISTS, the data source that many people talked about, and um, that we try to look in a much more unified way to look at the overlapping realities between Europe and the OECD countries and this enormous dynamic country known as Indonesia uh, and many others. So I'm glad you asked that question. We should have said at the beginning, probably, that our comments at this point are mostly focused on the rich countries simply because that's where we've had the data, that's where our intellectual communities have been, but that's changing. And hopefully we will have a better answer for you when we reconvene this panel in about 10 years. And uh, until then, uh, I think you have the best answer to that question. And I wish we had the opportunity to, to, to hear it from you.
0: We have reached our time. Uh, I know if we were in person, then that means that we could actually engage in this a little bit more. Um, I would like to thank the panelists and everybody for joining us uh, today on this on this topic. Um, I hope that it has inspired some questions and some ideas, probably more questions than answers, though I appreciate the panelists doing their best to try to try their answers. Um, so again, if you have, if you have any thoughts that you want to share, you can use the hashtag LSE single parent. If you have any thoughts or
2: comments to share, um, and thank you for joining us.